Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. One of the recurring themes on this podcast is the need to bring more attention to the lab and to laboratory personnel. And I've no doubt you've seen the recent New York Times article on this subject. My guest today is Dr. Evi Abada. Dr. Abada has written an article about this topic and some ideas of what we can do. We'll also talk about her work in global health and 500 women scientists. Then after the show, I've got a preview of my upcoming interview with Dr. Sayeda Kasim. But right now, here's Dr. Evi Abada. Let's get into your background a little bit. And I know in every pretty much every interview I've seen that either you've, you've written or you've been asked about, but I'd like to cover it a little bit here for anybody who doesn't know. So you're originally from Nigeria, and I know you went to medical school there. Uh, what was your inspiration to become a doctor? Thank you so much for having me. And so, yes, like you rightly mentioned, I am from Nigeria. And um, back in Nigeria, the experiences that I had growing up is that Parents have um, a huge role to play in the lives of kids, in the career paths that kids eventually um, follow. So back home in Nigeria, if you were a kid that was, was, that was very smart um, with the maths, um, parents would sort of, sort of nod you into the direction of engineering. And if you were good with science and biology, they would say you, should, you are well suited for medicine. And if you're good with the numbers, they'll say, okay, go do accounting or banking and finance. And so I always um, loved science. I always loved biology. But then my parents were very instrumental in my decision to eventually become a physician because they were like, oh, you're so good with the science. You would make a good doctor. And we, didn't, we don't have any doctor in the family. And so since you're so good with um, what you're doing, I think medicine will be good for you. And so my parents actually played a huge role in my decision to become a physician. Okay. Okay. So is that... Is it similar to here in the U.S.? Like, at what point, I guess at what age, do you have to decide what path you're going to take? I think it's pretty early. I think um, right after um, elementary school, between elementary and middle school is where they start um, making, like, the impressions known to you. So right okay. from, like, so you know pretty early um, what your parents actually think will be best for you. For me, it was easy because it's something that I liked, but I think having that extra push from my parents sort of made it um, seamless for me. So you also have a master's degree in international health policy and management, and I believe you earned that here in the U.S. That's correct. Uh, I actually earned that um, from Brandeis University in Massachusetts. Okay. Okay. So what made you interested in this field? So after I completed medical school, um, so back home in my country, the practice is once you're done with medical school, you have to do one year of um, mandatory internship. And then um, you do one year of um, a mandatory um, national service. So sort of like you give back to the country and then you start working. You start working as a physician, a general physician. So, and so after medical school, so I was exposed to medicine in the real world per se. So I was exposed to working in the community and, and working as a general practitioner exposed me to a lot of things that I felt weren't um, working perfectly. So, for example, a patient has to do a lab test. Getting back results could take days and sometimes even weeks to get back a, a result. And so there were things that weren't working and I felt, you know, things 
should work better than this. And, you know, being exposed to, to the newspapers, to the television, you could see on the news, oh, things work so well outside where I was living. And so I was interested in going outside my comfort zone, per se, to learn more about how things work outside of Nigeria. And so I was interested in health policy from that standpoint. And so that was one of the motivations that I had to, because I felt it could be better than what I was exposed to. And so I I felt the U.S. would be um, the best places um, to get that exposure that I needed. Going back to the internship and the service, do you feel like those experiences helped you later on, like they gave you a better perspective, kind of a wider wider view of the world? I think so. I think so. Because, um, you know, um, Nigeria is a a very is a diverse country per se. I would say I'm saying it's diverse because we have over 160 languages and the country oh. is divided into four regions. So you have the north, the south, the east and the west. And the experiences that people in the north have is different from the experiences that those in the south have. And so um, doing an internship and having the opportunity to work in the community exposed me to things that I probably didn't know existed in my own country. You know, there were people that didn't have access to healthcare at all. Like they had no access. We were the access that they had because sometimes we had to go into these communities to provide free medical services. And so those communities looked, we were the, the medicine that they knew. And so, you know, having that kind of holistic um, experience sort of exposed me to some of the things that I didn't even know about the healthcare system that I was working in. And so, and that was definitely um, a push for me to get more exposure and more training. Okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I didn't realize, first of all, that Nigeria had that many languages and that many regions. That's, that's interesting. Okay. All right. So then back to the uh, international health policy field. Was there something you hope to achieve in that field? Is that why you went to, to study it? Yes. You know, I, I was only used to the things that I was brought up with. I was only used to the things that I've seen um, my teachers um, um, do. And so I felt I'm getting that extra training and getting the, the experience that I, that I wanted to get from the United States and being, becoming a policy expert per se, or getting training in health policy would um, make me prepared to influence or sort of add to the medical system back home in Nigeria and even internationally. And so I think having that that training, having the map. So Brandeis University, just to give you a little bit of context about why I chose that program. Um, okay. Particularly. So the health policy program in, in Brandeis University, I think is one of the top programs in the United States. And I, um, I already had colleagues from Nigeria that left the country and trained at that institution. So some of the colleagues that I, some senior colleagues that I had from back home in Nigeria actually went to Brandeis University, got the, the master's degree that I eventually got. And they are, and those people are working in several inter- international um, organizations. And so those, that was sort of like a motivation for me. I was like, okay, if these people can do it, I definitely can do it. And so I went um, for that training First of all, to get the, of course, get the master's degree, but at the same time, um, get more, um, get the education, get the experiences, get the um, knowledge that I needed. But I felt I could also use to impact um, the healthcare system um, back home in Nigeria. And 
and even internationally. And so, yes. And um, even in residency right now, there are some things that I do. And, you know, I get involved in healthcare discussions and, you know, I still draw on the experiences and the training that I got from my master's degree to sort of um, give me a voice in such discussions. And so, yes, I think what I wanted to achieve, I did achieve it. And I will keep using um, that knowledge and that experience going forward with my career. Have you noticed any differences between medical training uh, now that you're in residency in the U.S., medical training between uh, Nigeria and, and the U.S.? I would say yes. So I would start with the medical education that I received, and I want to compare that with the medical education that, I, that I've experienced and I see uh, medical students being um, trained here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So for in Nigeria, for example, let's talk about heart failure. If um, my um, teachers um, and my professors from back home want to teach about heart failure, they tell you um, the way we're taught is, okay, tell me 10 causes of heart failure, right? So we do more of text. They do more of text teaching, unlike in the U.S. where they do more of case-based studies. So for example, if if a professor in the United States wants to teach heart failure, apart from giving you the general understanding of what heart failure is, they put it into like case-based studies. So you have like a better understanding of how to apply that knowledge. And I think that makes a huge difference because for example, when I had to come when I started taking my board and my license and exams to get into residency. It was a big shift from what I was used to. I was more used to learning the text, knowing the courses, but not the application per se. So I think that that's a big difference between the medical training that I got back home and what I have seen um, in the United States. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I wonder if the difference, you know, back home is just because of uh, access to those types of cases or those types of patients. Do you think that has something to do with it? It probably is. And again, I think it also depends on the training of the people giving us the training. Like you can't give what you don't have. So if that's how the professors were taught and trained, um, that's how they're going to train everyone else, right? I, I uh-huh. if I remain in Nigeria, that's the same way I would train people coming after me. But now getting this exposure, getting this experience from the United States, I'm like, oh, this is different. And of course, this is better because then you can apply the knowledge, not just knowing about why some not just not just knowing about the disease per se, but how can you apply that in clinical practice? And I think that's where the difference is. And I think it's a very significant difference. Sure. Yeah, I would agree. So before you started residency, you worked for a little while in uh, research. What what are some of the things you did in in that area? So I worked uh, more in in the regulatory aspect of research. And so when I say regulatory aspect of research, so I worked with research teams, more like a consultant for research teams, worked with um, principal, principal investigators and their research staff to develop research protocols and submit regulatory documents to the institutional review boards and sometimes to the FDA. And so I was more um, on the administrative side of research, but then working as a regulatory um, consultant to research teams exposed me to a lot of research and protocols. So I was able to read about a lot of diseases that, you know, maybe I wouldn't have had the opportunity to really get interested in studying more about, but then it exposed me to some of the things that 
that are happening, real-time changes, new-time advances in medicine. And so that was the role that I played in in the research that I that I did. Okay. It seems like as we've been talking, you've been very good at taking advantage of the situations you've been in and getting the most out of them. And not only for the people that you're working with and the patients that you're serving, but also getting the information and the experience that you'll need later on. And that seems to have worked out for you, at least so far. That's right. That's absolutely true. Yes. Okay. So now now you're a pathology resident. Uh, I believe you're is third year. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Now, how did you come to choose pathology then as a specialty? So, so I'm going to go back to my medical education again. Okay. So back in medical school, that's one difference again that I mentioned about the training and that I had back in Nigeria and the training that um, is in the U.S. So in Nigeria, pathology was was divided, not like what we have in the U.S., where pathology encompasses anatomic pathology and clinical pathology. Back in Nigeria, pathology was strictly histology and morbid anatomy. Then the clinical aspect of pathology, hematopathology, blood bank and transfusion medicine, that was completely different. We didn't even realize that that was supposed to be part of pathology. But Okay. So what exposed me to pathology, what I really liked, what drew my, my interest, what uh, sort of sparked my interest in pathology was histology. You know, histology, my, the histology sections that we had back then was one of the things that I, oh, I always looked forward to because I'm this kind of person that likes to get to the root of problems. I like to know why is something not working or why is this thing working the way it is working or what's the cause of this problem? And so pathology was that specialty where you sort of learn the root causes of different diseases. It was the foundation. But again, going to histology, going to the histology labs and looking at the microscopes, I personally I just felt, wow, really, this is so beautiful, you know? So mm-hmm. I liked looking microscopes. I like looking at the slides. And so that was the, my initial interest. I just liked to, the fascination with the slides and the beauty of microscopes. That was one of the things that attracted me to pathology. And then from my own personal, my own family's personal experiences where we had some losses and um, we couldn't get the explanation, so to, so to say, of why some of the things that happened, happened. I was just more interested in knowing, like, why do people get sick? Um, what's the concept of disease? And when I came to the United States and I was working in research, I worked in pediatrics and um, pediatric neurology research. And in that role, there was a lot of the research that I was working on had a lot of genetics and molecular um, to those research studies. And then I found out that that's also pathology. So I was mm. like, oh, this is what I should be doing, you know? And so that was the connection for me from my initial fascination with histology and wanting to get to the root causes of things and diseases, then finding out that, oh, you can also do genetics and molecular as part of pathology. That just tied, tied out, uh, worked out perfectly for me. And so that's um, how I um, found myself in pathology. Okay. Do you have any uh, thoughts about a subspecialty at at this point? 
Yes, I do. I am actually very interested in women's health. And so when I talked about having a personal, like a family experience, I lost my aunt to breast cancer. And so that was one of the things that made me say, you know what, I want to do something in women's health. And so I love women's health. I actually have um, a fellowship um, from Brown University in women's health. So yes, I will be doing a special fellowship in women's health. That's breast and GYN pathology. Okay. Okay. You're involved in an organization called 500 Women Scientists. So That's correct. All right. So first, I'd like to know, what is this organization? What does it do? And then how did you get involved with it? So 500 Women Scientists is an international organization for, for women in STEM. STEM is science, technology, engineering, math, and medicine. So the organization is um, one of a kind that's trying to make science open, inclusive, and accessible for everyone, regardless of their where they come from, their identity, their gender identity, regardless of what they look like, regardless of what, what part of the world they live in. As long as you're a woman and you're working in the field of science, 500 Women Scientists believes that you should be given the opportunity to thrive wherever you are. And so one of the things that got me interested in this organization was their mission and their goal. You know, people tend to identify with what they are, what they are used to, or so to speak. You know, people tend to identify with people that look like them or experiences that look like them. And so 500 Women Science sort of embodies these concepts. And so that was what drew me to become a part of that organization. And so I currently serve in the leadership team. And, you know, um, when people talk about science, people hardly think about medicine. And so having to serve on that team, I'm bringing medicine into other sciences. So I saw so I, people that serve on the team with me include people from math, engineering, you know, mm-hmm. um, sociology, having that robust discussion with other um, specialties and, you know, women doing awesome things has been really fascinating. Okay. I wonder then that this is another situation where you're you're around people with other perspectives because they're you know in engineering and math and things like that. Have you learned things from them that maybe you could apply to uh, what you're doing in pathology? Yeah, I, from from the discussions that we have, it's actually very interdisciplinary. So I think, and that so thank you for this question because I think that's the, the that's the I think. That's one of the challenges that I see that we have in pathology. You know, people tend to think that pathology is just a silo, just a silo specialty. Yes. We're just by ourselves. So I think we are not by ourselves. We're actually supposed to be at the middle of discussions that impact patient care. But I think the perception about pathologists and laboratory scientists, all we care about is looking into the microscope. I think we have to debunk that idea because working with this group of women, you get to hear different perspectives. Like you, you get to learn about the problems that they experience or that they face with their own specialty. And I'm not just talking about medicine. I'm talking about people in math, people in engineering. And so the problems that they experience might be different from the ones that we experience as women physicians. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you get a point. So, so I think having that opportunity to listen to other people's perspectives, hear how other um, other specialties, how they do things, how they make decisions, I think 
that's something that we need to um, strengthen in pathology because I think a lot of times we are not brought into discussions that we should be brought into. And that's because people have this wrong perception that pathology just has to do with the lab and that's it. No, it's more than that. So, yeah. Right. Can you tell us about a couple of the projects you've been involved with, with 500 women scientists? Yes. So I will talk about the first one I want to talk about is we have a platform called Request a Woman in STEM. So Request a Woman in STEM is a platform and a database that we have um, developed by 500 women scientists that has the names and specialties, contact information of women, women scientists in different fields, math, science, medicine, engineering. So it's a public database. Why did we develop this? Why did we develop this database? We developed the database because we felt that women were being excluded from opportunities because, for example, conference organizers, when they put um, speakerships um, opportunities, you sometimes you hardly find a woman on panels. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons and one of the excuses that we were getting um, as an organization is these um, conference organizers were saying, oh, we don't. We don't know how to reach qualified women. We don't know women who are qualified in engineering. We don't have contact information for women who can do the same work as these men in physics. And so 500 Women Scientists was like, no, there are so many women that can do the same things that the men are doing. Right. And so in order to um, solve that problem, we decided to create um, Request a Woman Scientist. So it's a public database um, that has contact information from women from all around the globe. And so as a woman in medicine, I, it, was, it was gratifying to be part of that, that work, to be able to integrate specialties from medicine into that database. And so that's been um, really fulfilling for me. Okay. I'm going to put a, a link in the show notes to 500 Women Scientists because this is a great organization and I think people should know more about it. Thank you. Yeah. I'll be back with more from Dr. Evie Abada right after this. So it's December, and depending on what holiday you're celebrating, you might be looking for gift ideas. I'm going to recommend the book, The Queen of All Poisons, and here's why. Not only is it a great book, and of course, Dr. Barbara Jean Magnani was a guest on the show a couple of weeks ago, but also a portion of the proceeds from the book goes to support the CAP Foundation's See, Test, and Treat program. Now, if you don't know what this is, the program provides free cancer screening and health education to underserved areas. So these are things like cervical cancer screening and breast cancer screening. And during the month of December, you can enter to win a signed copy of the book from Goodreads, and I'll put a link in the show notes for that. So pick up The Queen of All Poisons, either for yourself or for someone you love. Not only will you be getting a great book, but you'll also be helping those in need. And that's what this time of year is all about. When you're working in pathology and laboratory medicine, there's one thing you always need, good quality scrubs. Well, Dress a Med has been designing and manufacturing high quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress a Med, and if you use my link in the show notes, you'll be helping to support the show. And now back to Dr. Evi Abada on the People of Pathology podcast. So the two of us were connected on LinkedIn and I've noticed you often post kind of helpful ways that we can take charge of our own lives or keep a positive attitude and things like that. 
I want to talk about one of the most recent posts. It was about avoiding burnout. Now, this is something we hear about a lot these days, especially in medicine, but other places as well. Why, why is this important to you? And what, what are some things we can do about it? I think burnout is a real, a real deal. It's a big problem. And I think, first of all, to address the first question, why this is important to me is because I know how important it is to protect my physical, mental, and social well-being. Yep. And I know getting, um, being burned out can actually impact my well-being, mentally, physically, socially. And so that's why I'm very passionate about this topic. And I know that a lot of people struggle with it. And so um, we want to prevent people from getting burned out. And so that's why I'm doing um, what, I, what I'm doing, just to shine more light on the topic. But I think what we can do about it is getting more people to talk about it. You know, you cannot address a problem that doesn't exist. You cannot address a problem that people do not believe or people do not know is a problem. And so the first thing I think we need to do is get people to talk more about it. Talk more about the fact that people in healthcare are getting burned out. Talk about the fact that people in the medicine, people um, in the labs, especially with the COVID, are getting burned out because people are working longer shifts and stuff like that. And so the first thing is education and enlightenment, enlighten the, pu- the public that this is a problem. And then the next thing is address, um, uh, um, address talk about ways and address ways to deal with burnout and um, talk about coping strategies. So, you know, personally for me, over time in my own career, I've developed coping strategies to prevent burnout. And one of the things that has helped me a lot is the ability to know the things that I'm supposed to give my time to and be able to prioritize those commitments. So I think one of the, the, the ways that people really get burned out is when we start feeling overwhelmed with all the things that we get to do in a particular day. So, you know, people think they need to do so much given the, so, the, given the little time that we have. So the ability to be able to prioritize has been really helpful for me because I come to realize that there is so much to be done, but not everything has to be done at the same time. You know, yeah. so I think helping people cope with the reality that, yes, there is so much to be done, but, you know, you can actually take a step back sometimes and take time to take care of yourself. So for me, I take breaks. Yeah, sometimes I start feeling overwhelmed with um, the things that I'm involved with, but sometimes I just decide, you know what, I think I need a break. And so the ability to talk about it, let people know that this is a problem and also provide coping strategies to help people, I think. Um, it's actually very important. It's a big public public health problem. I actually have people that talk to me and say, you know, you are so involved with so many things. How are you able to do all these things and you're still like happy going about your day? Like, you know, so these are the things that I tell people. You Sometimes you need to take a break. Yeah, yeah that's good. That's a great lesson like there. I love, uh, I love your perspective on this. That's, uh, that's very good advice for, for anyone. One of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you today was about an article that you wrote for ASCP's Lablogatory. And this article was called Pathology and Global Public Health. Now, you're, you're not the first person that I've talked with on this podcast that feels that global health is important. Uh, but I'd, I'd like to know why is this issue important to you? It's important to me because I have lived on the other side of the world, so I know what it means 
to live in a world that medicine doesn't work the way it's supposed to be. And if anything, if we have learned anything from 2020 is the fact that the world is an interconnected space. So um, I think the problem that we have in healthcare is the fact that people tend to think that um, what happens in Asia doesn't necessarily impact those that live in North America. Uh But now I think with the pandemic, we've all learned that what actually happens in Asia can actually impact the entire world. And so that's the basis of um, global health. That's why I'm very passionate. That was the reason I actually left Nigeria to come to the United States to learn how things work. And so that's why I am a very passionate champion for global health. I like to talk about global health because I, I think personally, I think we are just, we might be living in different parts of the world, but we are part of the same globe. So we are sort of interconnected. There, is, there are no physical uh, boundaries, so to speak, between those. So that's why prioritizing global health is very, very important for the world and especially for healthcare and medicine. And so, yes, that's my passion. So what are, what are some things then we could do? I mean, I, I guess like you brought up the pandemic and how everything is interconnected. What are some ways we can uh, improve our understanding of global health? I think more education and training. And I think we should foster collaborations and research ac- across um, continents and across countries. So, for example, um, I was talking with one of my colleagues that works in the Middle East, and we know we started talking about the diseases and some, somehow we talked about a pandemic and we're just talking about different health topics. And then we talked about um, the vaccine that was that the, especially the COVID-19 um, vaccine that's been developed and, right. you know, um, different to start using it. And my friend was telling me, you know, um, you know, there's a vaccine that not, not the go, um, COVID vaccine, like there's a routine vaccine that we give kids. And he was telling me that, you know, the vaccine that we routinely give kids, there's one of those vaccines that doesn't work too well for us in the Middle East. And I was like, oh, really? He was like, yes, it works very good for you guys in the United States, but it doesn't work really well here. Hmm. And I was asking, I said, why do you think that is the case? And he said, you know, he, from that, this was his own personal um, perspective. He said, I think because the research that was done probably didn't in- include um, kids from all over the world. Like, it didn't include specific um, racial groups. So he thinks that might play a role in how some of those vaccines work. And, you know, that made a lot of sense to me. I was like, oh, really? So, for example, with the Pfizer vaccine that's coming out, um, the storage that the vaccine needs is minus 70 degrees celsius right you know in my country where i where i I grew up from nigeria we don't have constant electricity there is no power oh yeah there is no power there are days you can go two days three days there is no electricity so how is that kind of vaccine going to work in my country it's not going to work doesn't stand a chance and so i think the ability to do more research across countries across continents where you get um, people from diverse backgrounds, diverse races um, involved with science and research, I think it would make a huge difference in the world of global health. So I think a lot of collaboration is needed. 
I love to see, I personally, I see healthcare as interconnected. That's the way I see healthcare, that we can, we are all interconnected. I think global health should be at the middle of the middle of discussions regarding healthcare. And um, for that to really be sustainable, we need to develop more collaborative research. Yeah, definitely. I it certainly, like you said, the, the pandemic has been a great lesson in this. And this is, it's kind of the whole mindset change that we're, we're going to need to do this is starting a little bit. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely more work to be done there. You know, another aspect of this article that that I wanted to talk about, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, about how pathology and lab medicine are still behind the scenes. You know, people don't talk about us much in the public. And and now with the pandemic, we're even more important, you know, for, for testing. There was one, I, I want to read a, a quote from the article. Just You wrote, pathology is the foundation upon which other specialties in medicine are situated. However, pathology as a specialty is seldom talked about or even referenced by other colleagues in other clinical specialties. And you talked about when we were talking about 500 women scientists, sort of the collaboration there between different fields. Do you think that's what's needed for pathology to kind of come out of the basement uh, and into the public eye more? I think so. I, I, I especially think so. Yes. You know, in this pandemic, um, I have been, one of the things I've been very proud about is the fact that I am in a specialty that's doing so much for humanity right yeah. now. But you know, in the news, when people talk about the COVID-19, I, I don't think I've, I don't know, maybe once or twice the lab has been referenced, but it's really rare to hear people talk about pathology and lab medicine. And I think a lot of that has to do with the perceptions that people have that we are just relegated to the lab. All that we do is to look under the microscope. It's a wrong perception, but I think we as pathologists and laboratory professionals, we um, have the responsibility to begin to change this narrative. We need to step up and let the public know that we do so much more than just looking into the microscope. You know, for example, with the COVID, the work that laboratory personnel do is phenomenal. Like it's, it's not enough to develop tests, even though we play a huge role in that, but what about the interpretation of this test? And what about effective delivery? What about making sure that people get the results that they need to make their clinical decisions on time? Right. This is what we do. Even with COVID, with the patients that have passed from this disease, pathologies, we are the ones that are telling people the the, the, the effect, the, the harm that COVID-19 does to the human body. We are the ones that are telling them. But they don't talk about the things that we do. No one is talking about what we do. No one is talking about what the, the things right. that we bring to the table. And I think um, it's time for us to sort of take the, the lead in this, in this situation and be our own voice. I think pathologists need to step up and start talking for ourselves. For example, when I was interviewing for my fellowship mm -hmm. and um, I was talking with one of my interviewers and she, from, from what I was talking, when I was talking with her, she could tell that I was very passionate about, about global health and I'm getting pathology um, involved in global health discussion. And the next thing she said, she said, how does pathology, how does pathology, what, the, what has pathology got to do with global health? And I said, 
a lot. Yeah. We have a lot to do. <laughs> you know, so I think the narrative has to begin to change from us. We need to begin to see ourselves as more than we just need to just make the diagnosis for a patient and that's it. No. I have the opportunity as a resident right now to attend tumor boards. So we go to multi multidisciplinary disciplinary tumor boards where you have the pathologist, the radiologist, radiation oncologist, you have the intervention um, oncologist, and everyone is talking about um, patient management. But you know what? One thing that I've taken from such discussions is the role that we as pathologists play in such discussions. So for example, there was one time I attended um, that meeting and there was a patient that had breast cancer, but the breast cancer that she had was breast cancer with mucinous um, differentiation, Oh, sure. which is different from mucinous um, adenocarcinoma of the breast. But you know what? It was the pathologist that told them the difference because they didn't know because they're different management. Mm -hmm. And we were the ones telling them the implication of diagnosing one versus the other. You see what our interpretation, you see the role that our interpretation makes to patient care. So I think we are so relevant, but I think changing that narrative begins from us. And that's why I'm using the platform that I have to keep talking about it, because I know that one day the right people will see it, the right people will hear about it, and we should definitely be more on those in those discussions. We should be seen, we should be at those tables. Yeah. So is, is that kind of you think we need to do like just keep knocking on the door like hello we're still here and we're this is these are the things we're doing and eventually hopefully someone will listen we should keep talking about it and we also should be seen i think um attend um the opportunity to attend multidisciplinary conferences you know i was i was at a conference one time and um i was listening to the speaker talk and it was like okay there was people from different specialties in internal medicine, pediatric, surgery. And, you know, they were, going, they were taking introductions around the table. And he was the one from pathology. And when he introduced himself and said, oh, I am from pathology, you know, there was this look from everyone in the room like, oh, pathology, you know? So I think it's, I personally, this is my personal take on it. I think it starts with us. It starts with people in pathology and laboratory medicine. If you don't tell people that what you do is important, I, I don't know if they're going to see it that way. We need to step out of the basement, like you said. We need to be seen. We need to come out. We need to be, we, we need to be vulnerable, you know? They know, I think, I don't think that people think we do not exist. They know that we, we do exist. But I think they do not know the scope of the work that we do. And I think we are the ones that can actually blow our own trumpets. We are the ones that can actually make them realize the roles that we play in healthcare. We are the ones that can make them see that, see, we do so much more than just telling you that this is the diagnosis that your patient has. There is so much more that we do. So yes, personally, I think it starts with us becoming uh, more visible. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, that's a huge part of why why I do this podcast to try to, I don't want to say raise awareness, but yeah, to raise awareness for, you know, the lab for pathology, like for more people so that more people can hear about us. I wonder though, do you think that because we're kind of behind the scenes, do you think that's the reason why or part of the reason why there's becoming a shortage of pathologists 
shortage of just lab personnel in general? I think that might be one of the reasons, yes. Because, you know, people tend to identify with what they know about. You know, um, sometimes um, we have medical students come rotate um, through our department. And so sometimes I have the opportunity to talk with some of the medical students that rotate through the department. And, you know, some of them are fascinated. They're like, oh, oh, I didn't know you do that in pathology. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know blood and transfusion medicine was part of pathology. So I think the fact that people don't know what we do, I think that's one of the reasons why we might be seeing a drop and sort of like a shortage in, in the field. And so going back to what I talked about, I think we have a huge role to play in sort of like blowing our own trumpet and letting people know that, you know, we do exist and we don't just exist. We are part of the medical team. The thing, um, the decisions that we make um, has a huge role to play in the management of patients in the healthcare system in general. And so, yes, um, the fact that we are more behind the scenes might be one of the reasons why we're experiencing uh, a drop in participation in pathology and laboratory medicine. Yep, I totally agree. Uh, Dr. Abada, this has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed speaking with you and learning more about you. So th thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Big thanks to Dr. Evie Abada. I really enjoyed her passion and her excitement for the field. And you can find links to everything we talked about today in the show notes. That's at peoplefpathology.podbean.com. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. And if you like this episode, if you're passionate about your field and you want someone else to know about it, please share this episode with them. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and wellness. Follow the link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network, and you can check out some of their other amazing podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. And now here's a preview of my interview with Dr. Saida Kasim. You wrote about how pathology and psychiatry can collaborate, which is an interesting idea. It's something I hadn't thought about before. So I'm curious, uh, what's the origin of, of this idea and the, and the article? Where did that come from? So I did have a chance to, um, during my medical school, to work in um, psychiatry. We had a couple of rotations um, and our clerkship rotations were in psychiatry. And I felt that quite a lot of times that the patients that used to come to us or even the students that were studying psychiatry, um, if they were given a more basic, more kind of basics of understanding what is going on in the minds of patient or what is going on in terms of um, the different diagnoses that they're studying about. I believe that that can help them understand and kind of comprehend psychiatry much more um, in, in a way that would be much more easier and um, kind of make them, if they're thinking about a career in psychiatry later on, that can help them make that, 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 that um, kind of a decision in a better way. 
I for myself, I mean, I love to kind of pose questions to different things that I look around myself and find answers to them, which is also one of the reasons that I came into pathology. To hear more from Dr. Kasim, tune in next week on the People of Pathology podcast.